1847, the project was completed, and a full, accurate copy was sent to Europe. Rawlinson did not rest on his laurels. As an army officer, he had military and political missions to carry out. But whenever he had a spare moment, he puzzled over the secret script. He tried one method after another and finally managed to decipher the old Persian part of his the, the inscription. This was easiest since old Persian was not that different from modern Persian, which Rawlinson knew well. An understanding of the old Persian section gave him the key. He needed to unlock the secrets of the Elamite and Babylonian sections. The great door swung open, and out came a rush of ancient but lively voices. The bustle of Sumerian bazaars, the proclamation of Assyrian kings, the arguments of Babylonian bureaucrats. Without the effort of modern European imperialists such as Rawlinson, we would not have known much about the fate of the ancient Middle Eastern empires. Another notable imperialist scholar was William Jones. Jones arrived in India in September 1783 to serve as a judge in the Supreme Court of Bengal. He was so captivated by the wonders of India that within less than six months, of his arrival, he had founded the Asiatic Society. This academic organization was devoted to studying the cultures, histories, and societies of Asia, and in particular those of India. Within two years, Jones published his observations and on the Sanskrit language, which pioneered the science of comparative linguistics. In his publications, Jones pointed out surprising similarities between Sanskrit and an ancient Indian language that became the sacred tongue of Hindu ritual, and the Greek and Latin languages, as well as similarities between all these languages and Gothic, Celtic, Old Persian, German, French, and English. Thus, in Sanskrit, Mother is Matar. In Latin, it is Mater. And in Old Celtic, it is Mathir. Jones surmised that all these languages must share a common origin, developing from a now forgotten ancient ancestor. He was thus the first to identify what later came to be called the Indo European family of languages. Jones's study was an important milestone, not merely due to his bold and accurate hypotheses, but also because of the orderly methodology that he developed to compare languages. It was adopted by other scholars, enabling them systematically 
to study the development of all the world's languages. Linguistics received enthusiastic imperial support. The European empires believed that in order to govern effectively, they must know the languages and cultures of their subjects. British officers arriving in India were supposed to spend to th up to three years in Calcutta College where they studied Hindu and Muslim law alongside English law. Sanskrit, Urdu, and Persian alongside Greek and Latin, and Tamil, Bengali, and Hindustani culture alongside mathematics, economics, and geography. The study of linguistics provided invaluable help in understanding the structure and grammar of local languages. Thanks to the work of people like William Jones and Henry Rawlinson, the European conquerors knew their empires very well, far better indeed than any previous conquerors or even than the native population itself. Their superior knowledge had obvious practical advantages. Without such knowledge, it is unlikely that a ridiculously small number of Britons could have succeeded in governing oppressing and exploiting so many hundreds of millions of Indians for two centuries. Throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries, fewer than 5,000 British officials, about 40,000 to 70,000 British soldiers, and perhaps another 100,000 British business people, hangers-on, wives, and children were sufficient to conquer and rule up to 300 million Indians. Yet these practical advantages were not the only reason why empires financed the study of linguistics, botany, geography, and history. No less important was the fact that science gave the empires ideological justification. Modern Europeans came to believe that acquiring new knowledge was always good. The fact that the empires produced a constant stream of new knowledge branded them as progressive and positive enterprises. Even today, histories of sciences such as geography, archaeology, and botany cannot avoid crediting the European empires, at least indirectly. Histories of botany have little to say about the suffering of the aboriginal Australians but they usually find some kind of words for James Cook and Joseph Banks. Furthermore, the new knowledge accumulated by the empires made it, rather made it possible, at least in theory, to benefit the conquered populations and bring them the benefits of progress, to provide them with medicine and education, to build railroads and canals, to ensure justice and prosperity. Imperialists claimed that their empires were not vast enterprises of exploitation, but rather altruistic projects conducted for the sake of non-European races. In Rudyard Kipling's words, The White Man's Burden Take up the white man's burden 
Send forth the best ye breed. Go bind your sons to exile to serve your captives' need. Captives' need. To wait in heavy harness, unfluttered folk and wild, your new-caught sullen peoples, half devil and half child. End quote. Of course, the facts often belied this myth. The British conquered Bengal, the richest province of India, in 1764. The new rulers were interested in little except enriching themselves. They adopted a disastrous economic policy that a few years later led to the outbreak of the Great Bengal Famine. It began in 1769, reached catastrophic levels in 1770, and lasted until 1773. About 10 million Bengalis, a third of the province's population, died in the calamity. In 